YouTube channel covering dating, family, and Islamic thought. I, I thought it'd be really good today to have a conversation about um, the fall from the perspective of Islam, and then maybe comparing to, um, you know, Christianity and the other sort of uh, people of the book who subscribe to the tale of the fallen in various form. Uh, you've been nice enough to kind of um, flag up Iqbal's interpretation um, from an Islamic perspective of the fall. Um, for someone like me who, you know, inevitably comes at these things from a more Christian perspective, could you just kind of walk me through the the fall as it's seen from Islam? So Iqbal's kind of like, yeah, it's best probably not to start from Iqbal's perspective because he is he is bringing philosophy into it, and he's also um, uh, he's also uh, sort of a mystic. So just to give you like, if you were to just approach a Muslim, just a regular Muslim, and they were to tell you about the fall, they would just say that they would do a couple corrections. One is that um, Satan is not an angel. Satan is a jinn made of fire. So that's a significant uh, kind of thing to note. Uh, So it's not an angel that betrayed God. It's a jinn. And then the other thing is the whole rib thing from Adam into Eve, that is completely omitted. So that's not there. Uh, If you go through a couple of the verses from the Quran, and it's in various places, so the Quran is not really in a, uh, it's it's really good to know this, that it's not in a sort of linear order. Mm -hmm. You'll find verses talking about the fall, you know, in one section, and then in another section, and then maybe towards the back or in the middle, it's kind of spread out through the Quran itself. Uh, and it adds like a little bit more each time or, or, or you know, whatever. So, but, but basically again, so it omits the rib and uh, story. It omits the whole apple idea. The only thing that you get is that Satan tempted, uh, well, actually it doesn't even, yeah, yeah. Satan temp- tempted Adam. And then the only glimpse you get of Eve is you don't even get a name, Eve. You get Adam go down to earth with you and your wife. Like you, you, you go down there with you and your wife. So it doesn't explicitly say Eve. Mm. Um, but we're kind of assuming Eve. <laughs> And the reason why we're kind of assuming Eve is because, one, the the Islamic narration, the Islamic perspective is that the Quran came down to affirm everything that came previously. So it's supposed to be the affirmation of all the scriptures before it, meaning Judaism, Christianity, and so on. But, again, this is the traditional conception that... Uh, the Quran is there to sort of correct the errors or the distortions that happened during those times. Mm. 
So, so you could say that's, so you could say, so some art, some Muslims would argue that the, the reason why the Quran omits the, the you know, the ad, the rib story, whatever, is because that, you know, ends up being just a distortion of, of what happened. Um, again, I don't know, because it's, it's interesting because I feel like you can look at it both ways because it's kind of silent on the thing, right? You could say, well, it's either that it omits it completely or that it's saying that actually it's a true part of the story. So it just continues on, <laughs> you know, um, and the, but the only correction you see is that actually Satan is uh, not an angel. He's a, he's a jinn. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, so there's that way to look at it. Um, and, and that's basically the traditional conception. And then also there is no, and this is important too, is that there's no concept of original sin. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it's basically like Adam begs for forgiveness. He gets forgiven and then that's it. There's, there's nothing uh, about uh, like the will being corrupted or, or so on. Uh, so there is no concept of original sin in, in the Islamic narrative. Right. And the word, the word jinn is something like spirit, right? So jinn, so this was actually very interesting when I first learned about this. So jinn are basically, uh, there's a parallel realm called jinn they basically have the same amount of freedom that we do as human beings is just, we're kind of like barred from each other, but uh, apparently, you know, Jin can, we can make contact with them and, and so on. They're almost want to, it's weird because you almost want to say like demons, mm-hmm. but apparently there's good and bad Jin. The problem is, is that Muslims tell you not to mess with it because you don't know what type of jinn you'll get in contact with. So, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of like the, the interesting part. Uh, so you don't really get any, uh, like, demon aspect. You just get, like, there's followers. There's actually good jinn that follow the Quran. <laughs> that's actually what you get from the, one of the Quran verses is that there's a specific time period where the jinn were listening to the Quran being recited. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's it. That's really it. The, the jinn are made of fire and they have like almost the same freedom as we do. Mm-hmm. So. It's interesting because it does functionally, I mean, obviously, you know, the this, this specific descriptions are different, but it does functionally serve a similar um, purpose to the angels of Christianity, right? Because as you said, they're kind of on a different plane, but you're, we're able to commune with them if you know if if that's allowed to happen and you know they have free choice what that's why there's fallen angels why satan's seen as a uh, fallen angel in christianity and that's part of free choice as well so it's interesting how you know the the metaphor and functional purpose of these concepts is shared but the substantive element changes um i know it's not the case in all of the in the in all of this and we'll get into that but um it is interesting how you know the core is is functionally the same 
yeah, it's uh, like <laughs> the the angels. It, it like it's funny because like the Muslims will say like, oh no, the angels can't disobey at all. They have complete submission. So that's and it's the reason why that is. You could say is the Muslims will argue it's the fact that man has free will. Uh, is why man is technically superior than the angels because everything else that is in god's like kind of like realm has to submit to him they have no choice mm-hmm. we're the first like beings but it's like we're the first beings plus jinn that can do this um but then satan does that funny thing where he's like oh but i'm made of fire so i'm better than him um and then he makes that mistake uh and he also tempts adam and well yeah it, it's funny because yeah he tempts adam and then so something that's quite central to all of this um not talking about you know the specifics of the story but uh, just in islam in general you know they're not being um an equivalent concept of original sin which I think is incredibly central and I, th- I think this goes for Judaism as well right it, it's not it's not it's not conceived in the same way as it is in Christianity in, t- in terms of the role that plays in the religion's outlook what 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 do you think the central difference is with that and is there a I mean there's there's haram things in Islam right there's there are like what you might think of as sinful or bad things right so I, I'm wondering what the the functional like difference is between you know original sin and sins generally. So this is <laughs> so this is like what's gonna like a lot of people would have theological debates about. But from the the Islamic narrative is that basically it's I, I think so. I'm gonna use Shuan as like my kind of like figure to extract this because very few people can metaphysically abstract uh what exactly is the difference and shuan abstracts it in the sense that so for christianity will is corrupted but will is also intelligence so it's will as intelligence and then as man so if the will is corrupted that means man's intelligence is corrupted and his will so they're both the same um and that's why you need the the sacrament you need the sacrifice uh you need jesus but for islam the argument is that intelligence comes before will and that um which has been a hotly debated topic between christians and muslims because like saying how can you determine which is which um but i think the the way to look at it is and i've had to kind of <laughs> dissect this myself i was actually talking to daniel about this og rose and, and his wife about this for a long time last night i want to say the difference lies in the points of departure the reason why the muslim can't understand the christian is because he only sees god uh and the world that's it right you can't put a a sort of type of mediator um other than like the messenger but for christianity it's god through christ's world so it's 
like almost like a you know like a tunnel going through from god to christ and, and to the world so it's uh christ basically embodies the whole you know the the relative towards absolute mm-hmm. um and muslims have a hard time grappling with that because uh one of the testimonies of faith to become a muslim is there's only one god meaning we can't take any anthropomorphic conception of god because it's absolute there's just we can't know god we can't fathom god so it's just absolute and so to understand why and this is kind of putting my interpretation on it because i feel like most muslims wouldn't know because they don't like metaphysically abstract this stuff (laughs) is that actually christianity uh, christianity's departure is when man gets created so will and intelligence that is the same and it's true you can't it's really hard to argue which one comes first and 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 daniel talked to me about this you know the will can resist the intelligence and and so on and so on um but i the muslim takes it from the god's perspective meaning that if god is all-knowing he can't just act without knowing because then he's not god so then intelligence comes first and because uh god made it, man is made in the image of god they kind of just reciprocally go that intelligence came first before will yeah and it, it, that that whole idea of um intelligence being the second thing in christianity is pretty evident from the text as well like it's explicitly said that the the, the tree like the, the actual tree and the apple of uh, christianity contain like okay it says specifically knowledge of good and evil in genesis but mm-hmm. it's still knowledge right um yeah but it's interesting to hear that different sort of theological um view on that thing um yeah i'm just wondering what kind of what what's your interest in this in this subject in islam is it a personal faith or is it just out of interest uh it was a personal faith for a while but um i think my my main interest is that it's such a like it's such a vastly misunderstood religion just in general it's probably mm-hmm. one of the biggest religions that are so vastly misunderstood mm-hmm. like it's crazy how even muslims themselves don't even understand it. um and there's such cultural uh differentiations within islam itself that you could go to so many different muslim countries and i'm putting quotes here that it would just all be different um and and it's funny because most muslims believe that that is what the faith is even though there's cultural leakage all in there and it's hard to determine because you are born into it Mm. um it's not until you kind of have like an outsider perspective and just look at you know basically the doctrine and the theory that you start thinking well that's weird it doesn't make any sense um uh, and, and i feel like you know islam is not really something that you know people in the, in the united states are gonna specifically talk about <laughs> you know it's not it's not necessarily the predominant religion you know mm. um and, and most people are just kind of content with um just either not knowing about it or just having the conception that they have uh so i 
I took it upon myself to kind of just be like, you know, make content, uh, learn more about it, uh, kind of fix the misunderstandings. I think that's kind of like really what I'm passionate about is try to fix the misunderstandings because I feel like um, a lot of people's kind of like resentment or repulsion is perhaps misunderstood. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, that's really my position right now. Yeah, I, I just I just find it a really interesting question when someone's intellectually interested in these sort of theological or I guess you might come from like a Jungian angle and say it's more psychological or mythological. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't consider myself uh, now ever really been a Christian, but um, it's obviously I think it's obviously what I know the most about just because that's kind of the culture I come from. Um, but I, I still feel a weird sort of pull towards these topics. And it definitely started with uh, Christianity and, you know, actually for me specifically uh, getting into Milton because I almost like if I had to choose like a religious perspective, I'd almost like consider the Milton texts as my, as my like kind of Bible. Um, but that's just, that's a, def- that's a different, that's more of a taste thing, but um yeah, it, it's weird though, because now trying to understand something like Islam that I've had, um, you know, like preconceptions and prejudices, that just, you know, ties into politics and how we consume information, I think. It is yeah. interesting to, you know, notice there is, especially because these are, you know, religions of the book, but that there is, you know, these great similarities and, you know, from a philosophical perspective, you can almost view them as tools for um, viewing the world in a certain way, which, you know, talk about metaphysics, this, this stuff has downstream effects, right? The, yeah. the Christian interpretation of the fall is a, is a toolkit in one sense and is good at some things and maybe not, and maybe misunderstands others. And then maybe the uh, Islamic interpretation is a toolkit in the same way. I don't know if you agree with that, but I—I I mean, I, I do because <laughs> I actually did a video today, and I basically said that uh, the reason why people argue over Freud and Jung so much is that um, my opinion is that Freud takes it as man himself is fallen, will corrupted, um, and Jung takes it as um, that the human being is a theomorphic being, which is what Islam takes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I want to correct. One aspect, though, is that Christians will still accept the idea of theomorphic being because you're supposed to find a new Jerusalem and the whole idea of like there's a kingdom of God inside of you. If you anthropomorphize God, that also inversely makes you a theomorphic being. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is with Freud is that he takes these, the idea of fallen man without God. And he says, well, how do you deal with that? This is why you get all of his theories about sex violence um neurosis this is all sort of predicates and and summarizations of what happened in the garden of eden mm-hmm. it, it, they, they they deduce it to like a sexual uh diso- disobeying kind of thing mm-hmm. um, and so his whole theory is basically built off of that while simultaneously rejecting the existence of god mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think um, it's I think it comes out not you know I think Freud is a really good example there in terms of 
someone you could think of like as philosophical, but obviously psychological. But I think this comes out in so many different ways in like, for example, political viewpoints. Like I think because, and maybe this, maybe this is just speaking to what I know about, but I think in the West definitely, because as much as we might deny it, there is this, there's this constant kind of background noise of Christianity just because of the impact it's had. I feel like, you know, that gets taken to extremes in um, political views, you know, with extreme, like, mindless altruism, which is kind of a weird misjudging of what Christ was talking about, um, what, what he was all about. Um, and I, I don't know, it makes me wonder if the same as maybe, um, I mean, I guess uh, Islam still has much more of a hold in the places in the world where that's present, I think, generally speaking. Well, the thing is, like, I'm, it's, it's weird because my perspective on the Islam is that I really want to get away from Islam being this sort of narrow religion mm. because I feel, I mean, I'm, I, I really do feel like Islam is actually a universal religion, but not in the sense of, like, everybody follow this religion. I'm talking about it's a very abstract notion, and, and I'm going to tell you what, what I mean by how abstract it is. Okay, so Islam, the actual word itself, means submission to God. Muslims means those who submit to God, right? If we abstract that, those who believe in some type of absolute have that same religion. Mm -hmm. It, but the thing, the thing that gets confusing is, is that people go, oh, well, they don't believe in, uh, like, Prophet Muhammad, and they don't believe in all this other stuff. Well, the thing is, they also don't believe in the other prophets. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you how abstract this is, because, look, there's a verse in the Quran that says, I send prophets from east to the west. And then there's prophets that are not named because there's like a crap ton of them. And what this would mean is that actually, if we entertain this idea seriously, that means Buddha's possibly a prophet. Um, we have the, you know, whatever, the all the more you know, like ancient Eastern religions, most of their people are probably like prophets themselves. Um, I have Nasser. Nasser is one of the like perennialist uh, Iranian philosophers. Uh, Muslims disagree with him, but he would argue that Plato was a philosopher and Pythagoras was, a, I mean, <laughs> Plato was a prophet and Pythagoras was a, was a prophet mm. um, because they're asking you to basically acknowledge this absolute. And the Quran says all the messengers that we have ever sent is one simple message that you worship the one and only the absolute. Mm. The thing is, there's, we call it by so many different things, which I mean, if I want to take it seriously um, from my interpretation is that this allows for universality and difference. Mm. Um, and, 
you know, people would fucking kill me <laughs> if I said this, you know, <laughs> because they, they just, um, and I, and I think one, I, I think the big problem with Christianity and Islam is that people worship the law, like the law in the, in their own texts, um, so much that actually I almost want to say that you're not even, you have no concept of actually worshiping God anymore hmm. because you are just worshiping the law. And so you get this cold, rigid, heartless, um, just, just nothing. I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. It's, and, and this is why you get towards the, the, the fifth and sixth centuries of Islam, Sufism bursts out which is more like the, you could say it's more like the lovey-dovey mystics. And they're all about, you know, they, they talk about love more than the law. Mm. Um, and, they, and they look at Jesus as one of the primordial figures for uh, kind of getting closer to God because he, they look at Jesus as like the path of love to get to God. Um, and, and a lot, there's a lot of Sufis that write poems about Jesus because they feel like he embodies this pathway to love, um, and, and they believe it's also the quickest. Mm. And if we even go back to the Bhagavad Gita, which is called the Song of God, ironically, right? Mo many people say, "Oh, it's a polytheistic religion." Well, what's funny is that their primordial revelation is called the Song of God, mm. and um there are multiple pathways to god and one of them is through deeds love and wisdom and and, and through intelligence basically mm. the heart path is the fastest way and the the intelligence path is the longest way um and and i feel like there's a case for universality here but um yeah, it, it's um, you know, I there there's hints in the Quran about what a believer actually is, mm. and one of the verses talks about how God sent something down to affirm what they already knew, mm. and they chose to deny it. So the and this is repeated multiple times, and even. The people that claim they believe in the, in Islam, there's a verse that's saying, oh, there'll be people that, you know, say they believe in God and worship and all that, but they're actually unbelievers. Um, so that means there's actual unbelievers within Islam itself. And then there's uh, unbelievers that know something is the truth and still reject it. So the whole predication of what an unbeliever is, and I feel like people don't talk about this, is that actually... An unbeliever is somebody that knows it's the truth and still chooses to reject it. Hmm. It's not that it, it's not that they don't know it's true. It's that they know to the deepest core of themselves that it's true and they still reject it. So and, and, and there's also a verse in the Quran where it talks about the, you know, the, the Jews and the Christians, they'll be. You know, if they worship me, they'll, they'll be safe in, 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 on Judgment Day. Hmm. And a lot of people, a lot of Muslims try to extract this and say, well, those were the uh, those were the Christians that historically, 
accepted Islam because they affirmed the scriptures and so on and so on. I'm like, okay, first of all, <laughs> there's so many problems because if you take like a, a, a philosophy of history seriously, uh, you know, you're not even questioning that. But if you look at the combination of verses between what it talks about for believers, what are the predications for believers and so on, is that actually if you find any revelation that you can, that your heart is inclined to and you know is the truth, then, and, and if you reject it, then you are actually an unbeliever. <laughs> um, and, and I think for some reason, this has been like distorted for centuries because I've been recent, I've been reading the Quran recently and I'm like, wow, this is some bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, um, I guess people's reasons for not believing are quite interesting anyway, because I feel like you, I mean, we, we know this philosophically speaking, I think, is that, you know, you kind of have to go out on a limb and believe something, right? Um, huh? You kind of have Sorry. to go out on a limb through, because you're always going to have doubts, right? You're always going to have doubts. You, yeah, yeah. you have to believe in something, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like, you know, there's, there's like reasons for this. Well, like, you know, well, I can't fit this um, theology into my rationality, you know, all these sorts of denial. I'm just wondering if um, Islam has a, uh, a concept of uh, false idols in the same way that Christianity does, do you know? Because that rationality is almost like a false idol, right? Yeah, yeah no, you're right. It, it's, it is, but um, like there's my favorite verse, called like um it's in the quran it says worship your lord until certainty comes to you mm-hmm. now this has been translated as you know worship your lord until your time of death comes to you um but i don't think it has to actually mean that i think there is this idea that even if you do believe obviously there's still obscure doubts but it's this idea of you you have to ontologically thrust yourself into uh, uh, the direction of the absolute um and yeah it's kind of a gamble um but you know that for for islam basically there's a lot of things that are idols for islam Mm. um I, i it's it's hard to like get into this but like um Basically, if you're not, like, in, in some severe way, if you're not remembering God, uh, you're, you're basically taking an idol. Like, if, if you're, for example, like, the Islam is very big on the eyes. You know, if, if you look at a woman, like, first of all, you shouldn't even look at a woman that you're not married to. Because it's it's that severe in terms of just like that you might do something, um, and, and you might uh, you might sin and and and, and so on. Uh, but yeah, if if you take any anthropomorphic being so high that you forget God, you made it your idol. Mm-hmm. Uh, because for for Muslims, 
again, God is so absolute that you can't even like, you can't even fathom it. So basically whatever, somehow you, if you thrust anything before that, uh, you're having essentially an idol. You're not believing in, in God as absolute. Um, and that's why you could say they have a problem with, uh, with Jesus as, uh, Christians say, like, as you know, the son of God, they have problems with that because they would say, oh, well, you are worshiping him as God when God is only so absolute that you can't even know him. So, um, you know, and this is the, the contention that they always have. Yeah. It's, in, it's interesting how um i think this is my understanding from what i've read anyway is that uh islam doesn't have in the full story doesn't have kind of like you know the part about um adam and eve realizing that they are actually naked in the garden of eden and kind of covering themselves like kind of discovering shame in a way and it's interesting how i, I again correct me if i'm wrong on this but islam doesn't have that sort of metaphor in the like actual uh scripture but has a like like you just mentioned has a very similar almost like instantiation of shame into i would say shame you know what i mean like uh like you said like not looking at something that could that could be potentially a sin mm-hmm. um it's interesting how that's t- like kind of transfigured from a metaphor into into law in uh islam i don't know if that's correct or what you understand but i have to i have to find it again because i remember i looked up all the verses where it talks about the fall mm. i want to say there's one that talks about like the fig leaf but mm. i'm not really I, i'm not 100 percent certain and um yeah I, I i think if i i think if they embrace the idea of shame then you're embracing the idea of like the the original sin and then it carries on um i think maybe that's maybe that's why it wouldn't be brought up in that um but i what's interesting about iqbal's interpretation is that he says that their eyes opening and realizing that they're naked is the rising of consciousness Mm. um which is i mean i'm actually kind of more sympathetic to towards that uh description or it's actually uh, us that, you know, he kind of does this irony where it's like, yeah, you, you know, if you think of it like a womb, like Garden of Eden is like kind of like a womb, everything's perfect. You have, you're being sustained. You don't have to do anything for your, uh, your being. Um, and then all of a sudden you get shot out, like being birthed to, and, and now, now you're vulnerable. Now you're naked. Now you're, but at the same time, you're also rising to consciousness. You're opening your eyes. You're moving your arms, um, which is a, which I, I thought it was a fascinating kind of interpretation from his perspective. I'll tell you right now, no Muslim has told me that. <laughs> but but I, I I I am kind of sympathetic to that interpretation. I I because it uh, again I don't I for some reason I, I'm kind of against taking views of just like this and and i think daniel and me talked about this too is that 
a lot of people mourn the idea of like, oh, we fell, but we have to go back. And, and Daniel told me, actually, the, this whole fascination about the returning to Garden of Eden is just a, um, it's just a cultural thing. Because uh, from Daniel's understanding of Christianity is that you're supposed to find the new Jerusalem. And Islam also, uh, it's said multiple times in the Quran that God made man to become sovereign on earth, except we've proven to be so uh, inadequate. <laughs> like the whole idea of God making us is that we made a promise that we would be sovereigns on this land. And nobody else wanted to take the responsibility, right? It says it says in the chronic, like, not even the mountains wanted to take the responsibility. Not even anything else wanted to take the responsibility. We took it, but we've been heedless with it. Um, uh, and so on. Yeah, it um, reminds me of the part in Genesis where it, it's, um, well, this is less of a sort of responsibility of like that man takes up, but... Um, mm -hmm. God kind of hands down the dominion over, you know, fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, all that sort of stuff um, to man. So I'm not sure how that differs or whether that's basically the same meaning. Um, I mean, I don't think it, I don't think it differs, honestly. Sorry? I mean, like, I said, I don't think it differs. I don't think yeah. it differs. I, I think, uh, I would say me and Daniel's understanding of like man supposed to mean like some type of sovereign uh, taking control of something uh, of what God hands down. I, I think that's the same. Yeah. And that's something that stuck out to me with Iqbal, to be honest, is he, him, him sort of pointing out that freedom, freedom is a, as he calls it, a condition for goodness. And it's, it's interesting because that coincides, maybe this is a little bit off topic, but it coincides with a lot of the philosophical views around determinism, I think, was a lot of those sort of philosophically deterministic um, viewpoints almost imply a relativism by nature of the fact that no one's really making any decisions, right? And it's almost, you know, as if, I don't know if this coincides with the uh, Islamic view, but the whole idea of like a like a complete freedom that we've been given almost implies the fact that every single action we take um is like a decision to either you know like you said ignore the truth as is made evident or um you know actually do good yeah yeah i mean it, it's yeah, it, it's it's basically you could say our freedom lies in the fact of because it, it says in the Quran, you know, I, God basically made us to praise Him. Mm. We're the only creatures that have the ability to not do that, mm. which makes us um, superior and also lesser than everything else at the same time. Um, but we can become so basically like transcendent because uh, we can get extremely close to God if we conform to his will, um, if we conform to what he wants and, and, and if we direct our will towards him. Um, but yeah, it, the, the, the predestination part is, 
is always interesting because uh, I think what it Shuan says right here in, in predestination, he says, free to the relative extent he is made in the image of God. So uh, the way I understand it is you're free to the point that God allows you <laughs> mm-hmm. to, you know, make whatever you're making, uh, doing whatever you're doing. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, for me, I used to be kind of ambivalent. Well, I used to be kind of hate the idea of predeterminism because a lot of Muslims talk about this too. They're like, well, if if I'm predestined to be a sinner, right? Well, then what the hell is the point of all this, mm. right? Um, but I think I I think the the point I think the thing is that you can change that in my opinion um it's just that like like you know i i i quoted that um thing from mcball right about there's a man praying for a different circumstance mm. mcball says i don't pray that your destiny changes i pray that you change mm. um so i feel like that's a very significant understanding the predestination is that we all return to god regardless whatever we do we return to god that's the whole, you know that's that's the whole predestination point um the thing is the question is how do you want to return to god and that has to do with internal states mm. what you've been doing um and, and from the sufi conception it's what face of god do you want to see and it's actually predicated on what you've been doing if you've been a horrible human being you're going to see a horrible face you know, and so on and so on. So it's self-reflective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of a Sufi perspective, and this is, again, something that you'll just have to educate me on because I'm, you know, hear <laughs> these things through osmosis. But what do you think of the Mecca? I believe this is, I think this is right. If the place names, I may be messing this up. The Mecca-Medina split in um, what Muhammad was saying. Like is there much to that? Is there much to that? Because I, 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 I vaguely so so what what is it that you're uh, trying to understand for the the Medina and Mecca split? Because there's a time period where he gets kicked out, mm-hmm. and he has to establish somewhere else, which I believe is Medina. Yeah, and then he eventually he gets revelations, and then he's able to take back Mecca um again that's what i that's kind of like what i understand but i'm I'm kind of i guess what what's from what aspect of the split are you trying to understand right so i've I've heard that kind of the first half which i believe is the um what is kind of focused on by sufis is a more peaceful understanding of muhammad as a as a figure and then later on, almost by necessity of having to go back and conquer, the interpretations mm-hmm. can get more, I guess you would say, extreme or violent. I don't know if there's, again, I really like to know if there's any truth to that, really. So, so yeah, it's a, uh, if we take the Quranic, uh, like, verses, so Muhammad was postponing the the battle of taking back of mecca for a long time because 
God hadn't given him any like revelation to say go and, and, and take it. So he had been remaining kind of like, uh, you know, peaceful. It wasn't until he finally got a, a verse that said something along the lines of, uh, I'm going to summarize here. It basically says like, if they aggress upon you, then you have every right to uh, go on them. And it's, yeah, it, it's a very, it's it's funny because some people like to take this so out of context when it's like, there's some specific verses that are very, very historical because the revelation of the Quran didn't happen in like one sitting. It happened like over a period of time. And it, and it, and specific verses would be revealed when Muhammad was going through specific aspects of his life. And uh, the, the ones with like, you know, actually fight them and so on. This is, this, uh, kind of goes into when the, the Quraysh, I think that's kind of how you pronounce it, the Quraysh were uh, imposing on them. Or God gave, you know, Muhammad finally permission and so on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I know it's, I know that's one of those things that people, a lot of people have hard times grappling with. They're like, wait a second, like, isn't this supposed to be? like some kind of like peaceful thing like psalms about peace and so on um but i think i i i <laughs> i think i mean i don't know the way i look at it is kind of like well it's really hard to have peace if there's people imposing on you if that's the 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 perspective you want to take it mm. um so i don't know i i think Either there's some naive versions of peace, because what is it? I was talking to my friend Chitani. He's like, actually, the whole idea of nonviolence is you actually have to go through the violence in order to get peace. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but I, I think that's a lot of the things that theologians won't spend time talking about too much. They'll be like, oh yeah, well you know, uh, they'll just give you some fluff, and you either accept it or you don't. Mm-hmm. You get similar things happening with Christianity because obviously you have the duality of um, Christ the Lamb and there's also Christ the Lion, right? Um, mm. His doctrine is one of generally general peace and meekness, um, mm-hmm. but also there are some very specific um, parts which are at, le- at least violent in language, like saying that he also comes with a sword. And then obviously you yeah. have a specific instance, um, which is, I don't know, probably my favorite, favorite part is the sort of <laughs> temper tantrum in the, in the temple with the money. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. And also just all of his interactions with the Pharisees who, you know, they make a false idol of strange hygiene rituals and they wear strange garments because they've just kind of invented mm-hmm. these things mm-hmm. and it's not from scripture. I don't know if, um, does Islam have a, um, in the Quran, are there similar parables to that? Those sorts of things? There, there are. There are some similar, similar parables. Um, it actually, it's actually very surprising that there, I mean, well, at least when I first read it, I was surprised that there is a lot of similar parables. 
But there's also strikingly a lot of different parables, which was honestly like really fascinating because, you know, one of my favorite stories, and I think I already told you, was the one with uh, Moses and Kidder, mm-hmm. um, where apparently Moses talks about, he kind of apparently brags that he's like one of the most intelligent prophets. And God kind of out of like, to kind of keep him in check goes, okay, well, you're going to see my other uh, prophet that I've blessed with more intelligence than you. Mm. And, and so the whole parable begins with that interaction, which is, I always love it because Kinder is someone that actually breaks, you know, anybody that like would follow the law T by T would be like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? Like, you just killed somebody, just like broke this guy's boat. And so on and so on. And, and Kid is just like, I told you to have patience and you couldn't bear it. So I'm going to tell you what you didn't understand. Um, and it's one of my favorite parables. But yeah, I, uh, it's, yeah, they're similar. And, and I think I, I, this is again why I kind of have a, a hunch that a lot of the parables in the Bible are still like valid because it doesn't. Like it doesn't bring those parables back into the Quran and like change them a little bit. Mm. It doesn't do that. So I'm assuming like they're perfectly fine because again, the Quran is meant to come in and affirm the scriptures. So I I do feel like it's kind of hard to determine like exactly like, oh, this is completely omitted or it's actually true. And that's why it's not added on, (laughs) you know? Uh, so I do feel like a lot of the, a lot of what the Quran tries to correct, it actually explicitly states in the Quran itself. Um, cause like the whole thing about Jesus is like the huge debacle. So it definitely talks about that. Um, mm-hmm. it, sorry, this is the debacle of him being understood as, uh, God's form on earth or God's son. Is that, is that what you're Yeah, yeah, about? yeah. It's, uh, well, it's Jesus being sacrificed, one. But I was reading a couple translations and commentaries about this. And it seems that, so from a Christian perspective, you know, obviously there's room to debate, but I, I was reading the commentary about it. And it seems like the reason why the Quran and God is so angry in this instance is because the Jews were like, being were being proud of themselves that they killed a messenger of god Mm. they they killed somebody close to god and so the quran is kind of like uh you know using harsh words against those specific people thinking that they actually killed uh jesus Mm. Mm. so it's like the inverse right it's more like it's upset at the jews who were laughing thinking that they killed jesus um so that that's it just like takes the it attacks the other side it doesn't attack christianity actually directly in, in these couple verses mm. it actually attacks the jews for thinking that they did kill him mm. yes i mean in terms of the quran being as you said, correction, but also I'm, and again, correct me on this, but the, the final message, the kind of, you know, like this is it, this is the, this is the truth and there's nothing that comes after this. What are, 
what are some do you know any other notable examples of specific things from um maybe the bible or torah that are explicitly sort of rebutted or corrected in the quran i don't know actually um because i haven't read like the bible completely completely mm-hmm. um but i know like when i was a kid and i was told all the stories of, of the bible and stuff that it doesn't i mean it it, it seems like a lot of it is just i mean if i were to be fair i mean there's some okay so mary is one of those things um i don't remember seeing joseph's name there's this weird story about mary being on a tree like leaning on a tree and she's kind of like very sad mm-hmm. and and i think angel gabriel comes in and like comforts her uh and i think this this is before she was told that she was going to carry jesus uh, and then of course there's that weird, <laughs> there's that aspect where jesus talks as a baby <laughs> in the cross yes, yes. <laughs> which i always forget but yeah it's in there it's in there and that's a kind of like a very noticeable um difference and then also the idea of muhammad splitting the moon is also one miracle that a lot of muslims take seriously Mm -hmm. Um, yeah on the the subject of uh of of baby jesus is (laughs) the um i think it's the gnostic apocrypha right it's kind of like the other books that were written but not accepted canonically but are you know straight Mm. sects kind of you know subscribe to them there's like a couple of books about the young jesus like him as a kid going around and doing stuff and I mean, I, I really need to read them because they sound quite funny, but basically he does like loads of uh, quite horrible things and doesn't really learn anything from it. Like he's just kind of showing off with his powers, basically. So like the complete opposite of the temptation in the desert, like he gets he gets bullied. So he gets God to punish some other kids or something like this, like really wild stuff. But yeah, I need to look up, look, look into that. Read those. yeah i mean the, it's funny because like some muslims would be like yeah well you know the christians they they've they've hidden some you know books of the bible because it actually shows jesus talking as a baby it actually shows jesus um like taking clay and like them turning into doves or whatever mm-hmm. or like birds and i'm just like i mean i think there is one gospel that actually does like one rejected gospel that actually talks about jesus like taking clay and like throwing into birds um so and again it's it's interesting because it kind of when you start reading the quran you start getting like fed the idea that like all christians did like the the ones that were like the sort of higher hierarchy like christian theologians all they did was like distort the bible Mm. and kind of just like hide things from people and it got so distorted that you know it had to be basically corrected um and and that's kind of like the narrative that the Quran feeds Mm -hmm. that it just got distorted um and so it comes in to affirm what was correct and reject what was wrong um yeah 
and and that's obviously a lot of pills to swallow if we we if we want to accept it or reject it right um and yeah mm. yeah i know someone who is um quite devoutly religious um but is now going on to study the like specific historical like archaeological origins of the bible basically and it's been she was describing to me how it's like a really difficult thing to oh i want to go deeper into this thing but i'm possibly going to find out some things that are going to shake my faith and also kind of uh well, you know, exactly. That's it. You know, like you might learn something historical or archaeological. And there is things like this where, you know, word is moved around and all these sorts and, you know, books are like some parts are hidden, all these sorts of things. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a tricky subject if you're a professed believer. But um, I think what I take from the fall as someone who. I think I would call myself like uh religious curious maybe um but i basically see it as a kind of explanation maybe cope perhaps for the fact that we are um we're fallible creatures and we we are limited in our natures we're limited by that fallibility and also the fact that you know on this earth at least we're not we're not going to live forever um, or at least that's what the that story uh, professes. Um, I don't. I'm not sure if you kind of agree with that interpretation. But that's kind of what I've I've taken from it. Is it's kind of a an acceptance of our limitations, basically. No, I mean I agree. I mean I I don't think I don't think Muslims would disagree on that either. Um, I think what for me what is actually ironically you could say kind of like soothing when I'm, when I'm reading books like these, either the Bible or just religious texts in general, is that when you, you face something in your life and you get like that weird hit of like the void, right? I'm just going to put it like, when you just like encounter that void yeah. and you're like, bro, all of this is meaningless. Um, like is, you know, for example, like you'll have questions in your head, like, okay, I'm doing all this work. And eventually it's just going to mean nothing. Mm. You know, it, I could be famous. I could not be famous. Um, but why would I drive myself crazy thinking about whether I am going to be or not? Um, and then, you know, there's just all these things that you start thinking about, like, am I doing enough in life? Um, and when you read the Bible or the Quran, it just has just simple things that Anybody could have a a good life mm-hmm. if you just if you just pray if you just do good. I I am fascinated with just the simplicity of being told just to love and do good mm-hmm. and accept the limits of your capabilities. And and the Quran talks about this too, right? There's some people that I have blessed more than others, mm-hmm. but don't get don't get greedy about what you didn't have you know so so it could be that yeah you're right maybe i'm not smart enough maybe i am not all these other things but what i can do and what everybody always can do is do good 
is, you know, love and, 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 you know, pray. <laughs> and so, uh, I, for some reason, I find that to be the incredible kind of like outlet when you, cause you, cause I, I, I think really when you do get hit with the void, it really shows you like how empty a lot of the, a lot of the things that we do, mm. you know, when you get those like moments of just like pure sadness, you're just like, what am I doing? I don't understand. Mm. Nothing is, nothing seems satisfactory. Mm. So yeah, that, that's kind of like the, the perspective I take. Yeah. I think the the beauty of these things which have endured like, uh, you know, the scriptures of uh, Christianity or the Quran is that, like you said, there is um, there is a simple message to them, but there are also there's also depth as well, which is why they've um, endured is because they can appeal to you in whether you're feeling like you're in an intellectual mood or whether you're in a kind of hopeless mood, you can get a simple or a complex message. Uh, again, you know, each to their ability. Some people have a different way of understanding things and a different capacity for understanding things. Um, I think that's kind of why I'm not willing just to go, you know, the atheistic route and just jettison these myself. I think there's going to be utility in these sorts of things as long as there's human beings, basically. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's funny because, like, I can't, ex- I can't accept the, the nihilistic perspective just because uh, it just assumes that you actually understand these texts. Mm. When historically, you have to throw your whole being into these texts. You have, it, it's, it's like, it's not like you can just open a book and read it. It's not like that. A lot of these so-called, you know, revelations, there's kids, uh, you know, if we're talking about like Bhagavad Gita, there's kids that would have to meditate hours on just one single line of the Bhagavad Gita, okay? Um, and it's that kind of ontological participation that people don't, uh, and, and this is, again, some of my beef is that actually we we've gotten accustomed to just intellectually thinking about texts and so on, but it's, it's, I think it's necessary for some people's, uh, you know, natures, which mine and, and yours, but also it requires an ontological, just fullness. You have to throw yourself completely in if you really do want to understand. Um, so like because i get so fascinated sometimes i'm like yeah i will pray i will sort of ontologically thrust myself in because if i have always some type of reservations then i'm clogging myself up you know and lately just kind of like as an experiment i just been you know uh praying meditating kind of throwing myself in it and it's just fascinating because I feel like I'm understanding more, <laughs> but I, I feel like I'm understanding a picture, uh, an interpretation of the Quran that is more universal 
more accepting, more loving. And, and like the Sufi says, the the verses of the Quran, they're they're so there's so much depth to them. There's like a multiplicity of meanings within one verse. And 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 ever since they said that, I've been fascinated with understanding that. Because if there, if that means that there's a multiplicity of meanings, the way I understand this is that according to my ontological receptivity, according to what I give, I get back. Yeah. So if yes. I'm willing to have a superficial reading, then I will get a superficial reading. Right. You know, and, and that's how I take it. So I am not satisfied with just throwing that away and accepting nihilism because I haven't completed the work. Yeah. <laughs> and this is this is one of the kind of realizations I had about Christianity that sort of comes from, you know, looking at uh, the Christians in my life and realizing that there are certain fruits to their belief and their practice. And again, this is exactly what you just said is I, I'm wondering if, what it says about this in the Quran, but in this is repeated in the Bible a lot is, and it's kind of a response to any skepticism. It's like, well, take these tenants and put them into practice and you'll, you'll see the results. I, it actually ironically the Quran says something like uh, <laughs> there's kind of like a verse that I like it's called it's, it's titled the unbelievers but it says I'll believe what I believe and you'll believe what you believe and it kind of like it, it kind of keeps going down like that <laughs> um and and I always find it funny because the Quran kind of accepts this idea of you can't convince anybody mm-hmm. Uh, about any belief and it even says that you shouldn't even try to convince people if they're not already inclined to it then they're going to continue believing what they believe Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it does it does kind of promote this idea of seeking knowledge yeah the quran really emphasizes the idea of seeking knowledge and it always says if you want knowledge uh you know ask me for it allah says ask me for it if you want knowledge ask me Mm. Um, and continue seeking as such so this idea of knowledge is very you could say this is the ontological practice is that you have to ask god for knowledge Mm. you can't just do it on your own Um, so it's not the same but it's similar it 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 requires a sort of ontological participation yeah Um, Yeah. anyway on the on the topic of speak uh seeking knowledge um your YouTube channel is pretty prolific. Like you'll be having a lot of conversations on there. A lot of uh, just talking to the, just talking to the camera about um, what you've been reading and studying. Um, we've, we've kind of ended up in a, uh, like a, a, a particular circle on, on the internet. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering what, have you, have you studied these topics formally in the past? Like what, what sort of set you off um, to doing what you're studying and what you're what you're putting out on YouTube? And well, uh, so there's one big event in my life. One was when I deployed to Afghanistan, um, 
and then kind of like before Afghanistan. Uh, ironically, I was, so I came from a Christian background, right? Um, but the thing is, I never really practiced it. So it was kind of empty. And if I would go to church, it would just go to church just to please my mother. So eventually I uh, got to the army and I realized like kind of how empty this whole idea of saying that I'm a Christian. I started becoming really unsatisfied with the fact that I always tell people I'm a Christian, but I don't really do anything to say or, you know, to embody that fact. Mm. So I kind of just threw that away. And then I accepted like, a, it's funny, I, I quickly accepted an atheist position. But then I ironically got really curious with Buddhism and Hinduism. And I kind of read like the Dhammapada, which is the Buddhist scripture and the um, the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu scripture. And it's funny, the, the book that actually set me on my journey from the beginning was Herman Hesse's story about the Buddha. Mm. It's a fascinating story. I, I still think it's it's actually one of the books that began my journey into sort of uh, religious curiosity. Um, and then finally around before deployment, I accepted Islam. But I think the problem with that was I was a little too hasty. Um, because when I got to, when I got into Afghanistan, I was really... I was really going through it, like, you know, with my own religion in terms of like, do I actually believe it? You know, this is too much for me, praying five times a day, doing all this stuff. I actually did Ramadan fasting for a month. That was probably the most disciplined thing I've ever done. Uh, <laughs> and it was really brutal on my body uh, because, I, you know, I wasn't accustomed to it. Uh, but it you know, I was so obsessed with the law of it that it kind of drove me insane. Mm. Uh, and so by the time I got out of deployment, and then of course, you know, being in the environment of deployment, COVID, it just really got to my uh, mentality that I, I just dropped it when when I got after deployment. When I got, I just dropped it completely. And then I got really curious. But the funny thing is, I read Iqbal in deployment. And I decided to read them again once I dropped it. And after that, I started getting curious because Iqbal brings up a lot of philosophers like Nietzsche, Carl Jung, and it just, ever since then, I got into that loophole. Mm. And then I just never stopped, really, you know. Um, so it's, so I started realizing that, one, I really like psychoanalysis. I like philosophy. I like learning about religions. I learned a lot about myself through that, that through the whole kind of like period of despair. Um, and then now I'm just kind of like, I don't know. It's, it's weird. I, I think somebody said, you're just like in your corner doing your own thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of embrace that fact. I'm like, yeah, I'm just in my corner, just doing my own thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. But yeah, I think, yeah um knowing yourself is a is a is a powerful thing um and it seems like that's kind of the direction you're moving in um, but yeah, yeah cool so um some of these yeah some of these conversations get a bit serious at times so i kind of like to 
end up with a uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek question uh, uh-huh. a reminder not to take ourselves so seriously uh, if you were on death row what would your final meal be why would you tell <laughs> oh i know what it would be because I, I love indian food so it would have to be nice. uh chicken masala rice and the with the bread obviously and then uh, uh basically a mango smoothie mm-hmm. that's it man i die happy like that <laughs> i i like i i have it down man i, I know exactly what i would eat <laughs> yeah yeah that's good that's good some people are a bit uh confused by that question but uh yeah it's good okay thanks Javier. <laughs>